this edition of Hoopsology, Justin and Matt welcome New York Times bestselling author of his latest book, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season, Rich Cohen. Cohen discusses why the 80s was the home of the greatest rivalries in the history of the NBA with the Lakers and Celtics, along with the Pistons, the Chicago Bulls, kind of the golden era of the NBA. Don't want to miss this chat of an era that's not really discussed in this day and age, but deserves a lot more attention. So you're going to really enjoy this, the knowledge that Rich um, is about to impart on you right now. So enjoy this chat with Rich Cohen. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book, When the Game Was War, the NBA's Greatest Season, will be available now by the time you listen to this podcast. We welcome Rich Cohen onto Hoopsology. Welcome, Rich. Wow, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on to the show. And we have a tradition with a lot of our guests. Uh, we want to get either your first basketball memory or your favorite basketball memory, whatever comes to mind. Well, I'm going to give you two quick ones. Sure. Okay, so the first basketball memory is my father was a basketball coach, and he would go out and play basketball every weekend in the park. And he was playing with much younger people against the protestations of my mother. And he snapped his Achilles tendon and lied about it and walked on it for a month, resulting in this surgery that required him to wear a half body cast for like a year. And one of my first memories is him out in the driveway, dribbling in the wheelchair and shooting the ball up and missing the basket because he was sitting in a wheelchair and it hitting me in the head. So that was like one of my early memories of basketball, literally hitting me in the head. And then the other sort of favorite memory is with him now, myself older and it's in this book was game six of the 1988 NBA finals, Isaiah Thomas, another injury story, rolling his ankle and seeming like he was done for the season and coming back and having probably the most amazing single quarter in NBA's final history. So what was the inspiration for this book? Because, um, I can speak for Matt. Uh, we mostly grew up in the 90s. That is the era that we have the most affinity for. But the 80s is seeing highlights just when I was younger and even now just on YouTube or NBA TV, just kind of the golden era of the NBA, in my opinion. So what was kind of the motivation for this book and just to create a process behind it? I just thought that for me, sports was never more exciting than it was at that point. Some of it because of the age I was, but because the characters and the teams were so distinct and so vivid in the late 80s. And each one of those teams was so identified with their city and played in a style that seemed to personify the city. And I had this idea, if you focused on this one great season where you had all these future Hall of Famers playing and you could sort of focus on, I just focused on four games, the postseason and the finals. And the idea was almost like a Pulp Fiction kind of thing where each part would be about a different team. And by the end of the book, you would have gotten profiles or to know every single player on the floor and you'd have kind of this depth of reading about a game you never had. And ideally I saw it as kind of a nonfiction novel where you would even forget who really won and you wouldn't look at, look it up and you'd experience some of the excitement that we did watching Detroit play Chicago and Detroit played Boston and play the Lakers with bird, Isaiah Thomas, you know, Michael Jordan and magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It was, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's second to last season. He was like the oldest guy in the league, and it was Scottie Pippen's rookie season. So it was this amazing span of decades and players. So kind of adding adding on to that, I mean, you mentioned the the kind of culmination of of all those eras coming together. I mean, it's is that 
specifically why the eighties is, is the golden age of basketball. I mean, I personally have a, a little bit of envy that I didn't get to watch some of those great rivalries in the eighties. Um, why do you think it's, I, it seems to me pretty universally accepted that it's the golden age of basketball. It's almost like there are certain sports that have a golden moment. They might have two. So, and you don't have to have lived in it. I accept that the 1960s in baseball, when you had Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and Duke Snyder and Hank Aaron and Ernie Banks, I accept that that was a golden age of baseball, even though it was before I was born. I'm a hockey fan. I accept the golden age of hockey might be happening right now. And um, as far as basketball, for whatever reason, because uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson had come into the league and greatly grown the fan interest and rebuilt the game and played in this new style, which was Magic Johnson was like, you know, a very tall guy who played point guard because he never wanted to leave his original position. And the passing was just out of unreal that you don't see anymore. And since then, there have been, you know, rule changes that have made the game a little less physical and the three point shots become probably too important for the game's own good, in my opinion. And you had this game within the game, which was guys fighting underneath the basket. Uh, and, uh, it was just this unique era. Danny Ainge, who I spoke to, was a you know guard for the Celtics and Suns, I think, said, here's how you know it was the best era. Think of all the teams that would have won the championship at any other time. Mm -hmm. They were great enough to win the championship, but they didn't because the teams were so good. And almost every team had a, like a Hall of Fame center. You know, So teams like the Atlanta Hawks with Dominique Wilkins, and the Cleveland Cavaliers, they didn't win. They were great teams that just got stopped by Michael Jordan or by the Celtics or whatever. So I just think it's almost like why in the 60s did all these bands culminating or including the Beatles come out of this one city, which is Liverpool? Or why did punk rock come out of New York City in the 70s? It's just one of these scenes where the different players pushed each other to heights that they never would have reached without each other. And sometimes you've got a great player who doesn't have a great rival and you feel like you never really see him tested. You know, I always think of Mike Tyson, who when I uh, was a kid, he was a, just a devastating boxer, but you felt like he, when he was at his prime, he never had anybody that was in his league to test him and fight him. So you never had the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier kind of thing, but you had that in 87 and 88 in the NBA, but not just with two teams with, you know, four or even six teams. And so to me, I kind of pitched this game of thrones because I thought it was all these great dynasties that anybody would accept as dynasties, all in different states of their existence. You know, the Celtics were already getting old and the Bulls were the future and they were battling each other for this kind of one throne. And if you ever watch the game of thrones, you never know who's going to be the ultimate hero. And the idea that if you were watching in 1987, 88 and said of all these teams, it's going to be the Bulls they're going to win six titles in eight years. You would never believe it. You would think it would have been, you know, the, the Lakers. Yeah, totally with you. And I think to kind of steel man what you're saying there, it, it does always seem to me like when you look at maybe the most iconic assembly of players of all time, the 92 dream team, I mean, that that is a direct result of what happened through the 80s. Right. Or even look at the, the, the 84 Olympic team, which was kind of the last mm -hmm. amateur Olympic team. 
that had Jordan and uh, I forget all the players who were on the team, but I know the players that were cut. John Stockton was cut, mm. you know, and um, I think Charles Barkley was cut. And this was a team with Jordan and Patrick Ewing, and they set up NBA games where they played against the NBA and they beat all the NBA teams. And these were all the rookies coming into the league. So that's kind of a good bookend is that 84 team and then the 92 team. And you just look because they all became pros now and the players that hadn't made it now, some of them made it. So, yeah, it was just this wealth of talent. And the players still played long enough in college that they sort of really developed because I know Jordan wanted to go pro after his second year. And Dean Smith, the coach of UNC, said to him, if you stay another year, I'll teach you defense. And then after the next year, he said, okay, now you know defense and you're ready to play in the NBA. And if you look, that's what was so great about a player like Michael Jordan is he was also a shutdown defender. And when he put his mind to stopping somebody, no matter who it was, he would stop them. You brought up earlier the three-point shot. Um, we've interviewed other authors that have been very negative on the, you know, the impetus on the three-point shot in this era of the NBA. What is the, the consequences of that? And do you see it? You know, we see more players just rely on that shot as years go on. Um, do you see it just possibly ruining the game? Is yeah, that well, too much to say? No, I mean, it's an unintended consequence. So it was a good idea. And the idea is that we're going to give teams that are way behind late in the game a chance to come back and make it kind of exciting and keep the fans in the seats and rather instead of everybody streaming out with two minutes left because your team's down by nine and there's no way they can make that up. And it was that for a long time. So in this era that I'm writing about, the three-point shot existed and had existed. I think the first three-point shot was made in Larry Bird's rookie game. And it, it, it remained as this kind of occasional weapon. And then basically, I think it's like the same people, the same kind of algorithmic mathematical people. Somebody did the math and figured out we'd be better off taking only threes and hitting 30% than, you know, taking these mid-range shots and making 60%. So you just follow on that and a team wins with it and um, everybody else copies and it, and it changes the game in fundamental ways because... One, every if you watch the game now, if you just put them side by side, it's like the paint in the NBA is like a city that's been emptied out. It's empty. Mm. This, the paint used to have almost half the, you know, half the players on the floor were crowded in there fighting. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is everyone's taking three-point shots. The other reason is if you take a three-point shot and miss, you get a completely different kind of rebound where you get these long rebounds. So um, I, the people who came up with the three-point three shot, I didn't think they'd ever intended this. And they'd be horrified if they knew that this is what would play out eventually. The problem is I don't know how you, I don't know if there's a way back from it, you know, because so many players' careers depend on the three-point shot. You have great players coming out of college that used to be number top-round picks. They're not even drafted anymore because they can't figure out a place for them in the game. Yeah, and you think, you think of the um... – I don't know, kind of evolution of prospects coming into the league. I mean, if if Wemby had come to the league, let's say in the 80s, you know, there's there's no way he's playing away from the basket as much as he has uh, from right. what we currently see. Now, obviously, we got to see what they do in the NBA with him. But part of the appeal, it seems, is that distance shot, even though he's seven foot three, if I'm right. not mistaken. Now, weirdly, you wouldn't think it, but in the 87, 88 season, some of that stuff was foreshadowed. Because you had Kareem, who was the classic big 
underneath post up center who the, the offense ran inside out, like they would get it into him and then he would set up and, and look for, you know, cutting players or turn and take a sky hook or whatever. But he was a playing against Bill Lambeer. And one of the things that I didn't remember when I watched these games is Lambeer plays center. He sets up at the top of the key and he had a great outside shot. He wasn't a good inside player, but he could consistently hit an outside shot and a three point shot. And at the time, it just seemed like he was kind of soft. But really, he was, you know, under an offense. He played underneath on defense, obviously. But um, but he was really kind of the first guy I know center to play like that who was that big. I want to ask you, Rich, about rivalries. And it's something that I miss in um, this era of the NBA. Matt and I were talking offline about the WNBA with the Aces and Liberty, how that seems to be a, a rivalry brewing the WNBA and how there's really not a counterpart in the NBA, Keelan, are kind of younger listeners know just the importance of rivalries, especially in the 80s, and just not only on the court, but off the court, too. And just when, even when these players are retired, they still kind of have that grudge against each other. It's it's healthy, but still, I think it was kind of the lifeblood of that era of the NBA that you crafted in your book. Can you kind of explain just the importance of that and why um, that has really gone away in this current era of the NBA? Well, I think probably the easiest way to explain what it was is to explain why it did go away, which is one reason is free agency. So you have players jumping from team to team and, you know, so you couldn't, you don't, you can't really have rivalries. And sometimes I joke, if I were to go buy a Bulls jersey now, I would, wouldn't get the name of any player on the back. I'd get the name of the general manager on the back because that's the only person <laughs> that's still going to be around in a few years, so you know, and you see it in all these sports and there's so much money at stake. And, uh, so like the Bulls were interesting because those guys played together for eight years, you know, and they had to slowly develop uh, and figure out how to beat the Detroit Pistons. And it really felt like a, a story with an arc, like a hero's quest. Like you're watching the Bulls with Jordan and Pippen figure out how to deal with a bully who'd been beating them up every day at school. And when they finally figured it out, there was this incredible catharsis. And then the Pistons who, uh, this, who also had their journey where they had to overcome the Celtics over years and years and years, you watch them age and fall apart and kind of disappear. And some you don't see that anymore. One, because I don't think the players identify as much with the cities. For whatever reason, maybe partly because of phones, partly because of this, and even now post the COVID and everything, the players aren't, and probably because everything is filmed, so everybody's got to be careful. The players aren't out and about as much as the fans. I know Dennis Rodman used to go out to a bar after all the Pistons games and he didn't drink. He just went to hang out, play pinball and be around the fans. And there was this incredible connection, you know, between the fans and the players and the cities. Chicago and Detroit always had a rivalry because they're big Midwestern cities that were fighting for the same jobs and in industry. And it just got picked up by the teams and it created this incredible intensity, which is so important if you play a long season. Because what makes a game between the Pistons and the Bulls interesting when there's nothing at stake? What makes what makes it interesting is the rivalry. You know, why the Bears and the Packers still have it. They can still play each other. Doesn't matter. If you win every game, like think of Michigan and Ohio State in college. You win every game of the season if you're on Michigan, but you lose to Ohio State, the season is a failure. Even if you win a national championship. And that's kind of how they felt and that is really important to make people feel connected to the game. The other thing is the players are 
more careful because there's more at stake and they can have much longer careers. So you would see instances where players would sacrifice their careers because they were so pissed off and so into the rivalry. Kevin McHale, I think a year before I wrote about, played the entire playoffs and most of the season on a broken foot. And he would de- he definitely shortened his career doing that. And I always say it was a cho- choice between later and right now. And those guys would always choose right now. And then that's, I'm, you know, that just has to do with the era that they lived in and the intensity of each game. Yeah. And, and I mean, of course, financial incentive of the modern era compared to back then, I mean, has to factor in that a lot when you're, you're talking, you know, potentially 30 plus million a season, you're, you're factoring that into the equation and in terms of wanting to extend your career. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And also the guys you're playing against, you might be playing with very soon and you don't want to burn any bridges and you don't want to, you know, there's all these things and you've got this idea that the players kind of exist in one world and the fans exist in another world, you know? So uh, you just, you just don't see that kind of weird, you know, connection and how close everybody was. Um, A fan stole Adrian Dantley's, prosthetic shoe he had like a prosthetic thing that could be one leg was longer than the other and he stole the shoe because the fans went into the Detroit Pistons locker room after they won a game in the finals and he took his shoe not knowing what was in the shoe and the fan felt really bad because they said it on the news he didn't want to hurt his team's chances Hmm. and he actually called was able to just call the hotel where the Lakers were staying and they just connected him to Adrian Dantley's room and he said don't worry about it you can keep the shoe just take the prosthetic out and put it in the mail I just hard to imagine that happening now. It was a smaller, low, more lower key world. Yeah. And you think about, you know, we talk about rivalries of the teams versus each other. This just came to mind as, as you were talking that there were intense rivalries on teams that I'm not sure exist in the same manner on, you know, in the modern era. Like, for example, what we're seeing going on and, and what has been known for some time now between Pippen and Jordan. I mean, arguably... Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe not the best duo in in the NBA, but they're certainly in the argument given the run that they had. And uh, and those guys at this point, unfortunately, you know, can't stand each other, don't have a great personal relationship, but had a great business and and team relationship. Yeah, and if you you know, it's it's interesting because well, one advantage that the Bulls general manager had was usually on these teams they would fight for who's going to be like the top dog, who's going to be the star of the team, and everybody knew it was going to be Jordan. But it bothered Pippen, I think, that the amount of attention and the amount of credit Jordan got and that he felt, you know, short shrifted. Another really crazy one that happened the same time was Isaiah Thomas and Adrian Dantley, both Hall of Famers. Dantley had led the league in points and in scoring. And uh, basically the great thing about Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons is they had this idea that everybody had to sublimate their t- talent to the greater you know, good of the team. And you had to yield points and yield minutes. And, you know, Isaiah could go out and score 30 points a night, probably, if you'd ever seen him play early in his career in college. But he realized that his team would never win doing that. And when Adrian Dantley, who was a huge star, refused to do that and wouldn't give minutes up to to Dennis Rodman, who was a better defender, better late in the game, um, Isaiah basically pressured the GM to trade him for Mark Aguirre, who'd been Isaiah's best friend growing up in Chicago. And with Mark Aguirre, they started winning championships. So 
there was a real sense that these teams had to figure out how to get along and fight those rivalries. And mostly they did, but when they didn't, they were ready to just trade a player away. It's sad about Pippen because in our dream, they're best friends hanging out together, doing everything together. And the idea that they're not, it just kind of like ruins a little bit of the fantasy you have that they're kind of in Chicago, they called them Batman and Rodman or a Batman and Robin at the time. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. And, and yeah, for Justin and I like that, (laughs) that cuts into childhood memories a bit. So we feel that for sure. I also think it, it's um, interesting in, in how just raw it is and and how tied into their own um, their own pride about their playing careers. It it just feels a little bit different than uh, a lot of the stories we hear nowadays. You know, Um, I, I would say in my personal opinion, I mean, just a little bit less, toughing it out when there is resentment, which is going to happen on any team that has a hierarchy like that. And and all teams do. And they all, once they start winning, that's why I repeat, one of the reasons I'm repeating is so hard. I think Pat Riley called the disease of more. Once (laughs) they start winning, everybody wants more of everything. They want more money. They want more time. They want more interviews. They want more celebrity. And once the Bulls started winning, Pippen wanted more and he felt he didn't get it. Now it wasn't Jordan's fault. It was, Krause's fault and ultimately it's probably Pippen's fault because he took the security of a long-term contract instead of risking you know his career and playing for no contract which you see guys do and it's a scary thing to do but they get rewarded for it you know it's like what do you want you know my father always said to be successful you got to live with ambiguity and if you don't want to live with ambiguity because it's too stressful you don't have to but you'll pay for it And he didn't want to live with ambiguity and he paid for it because he deserved to get paid as much as anybody in the league, but he'd signed this long-term contract. I think that um, Jordan just felt like he could win with anybody ultimately. And he won with Pippen, but um, Pippen kind of knew that Jordan wasn't able to win with anybody until Pippen arrived. What have been the lasting effects from that era in the eighties to today's game? Um, positively or negatively? Um, or do you think it hasn't had an effect at all and the game has just evolved past that time? I think it had a big effect, which is the Pistons figured out how to play what my father called Brooklyn basketball because he was from Brooklyn, which is you, you basically the, it's the maxim, the Avenue X maxim, which is you can beat us where we're at least going to beat you up. And with the Jordan rules, they just pounded on Jordan. And the idea wasn't to stop him from scoring, but to so beat him down that by the end of the game, he had nothing left in the tank. And in the playoffs would fail in the third quarter. And the other thing they would do with Jordan, when they talk about the Jordan rules is they don't talk about as much as they let him shoot for quarters one through three. And the idea was he would take all those shots himself and everybody else on the team was became cold because they weren't shooting. Then when you got down to crunch time and Jordan had had the crap beat out of him and start throwing to other players, they weren't ready. They weren't in the game. And that worked, you know, that worked and not just against the bulls. It worked against the Lakers and it worked against the Celtics. And finally the league started outlawing that kind of style of play. So I think in the, the real offensive heavy game now, and um, the fact that you don't see that kind of defense because it's illegal so it becomes almost like just a shooting contest, like at the carnivals that you feel like, you know, um, that is a direct outgrowth of how the cell, uh, the Pistons won 
in the 80s. So that's one example. And also with the Bulls later, I think they saw a little bit of the glimmer of the three-point shot. If you remember the finals against Portland, where Jordan just said, okay, I'm just going to shoot three-pointers in the first quarter. And you saw that if he could do that all game, there'd be no beating the Bulls. Have to ask you, uh, you've mentioned the Pistons um, and your experience watching Isaiah Thomas. Uh, and and just want to pick your brain about the legacy of Isaiah Thomas. It, it's It's well known about the you know, blackballing situation with the dream team and all of that. But are there, are there reasons beyond that? Why you think, in my opinion, he's maybe, especially with the ratio of talent to how much he's talked about. I mean, he's one of the most overlooked stars in NBA history. Why is that beyond the blackballing? Well, I agree, man. And I would, I'd almost put him in the top 10. Well, people would think I was crazy, but I, he was an incredible leader, an incredible player. And I think on the list of the top 50 in the athletic, he's the only one who was under six feet tall. So mm -hmm. to be that good and be under six feet tall, I always thought Allen Iverson was under six feet tall, but he wasn't. So to be that good and uh, that size, you have to be something unbelievable so grading on the curve he might have been the best player ever i think you know so mm. the curve being height but i think there's a couple reasons first is isaiah was from chicago and he played a very recognizable chicago basketball and he grew up very near chicago stadium and he wanted to be the man in chicago and jordan came and took that away from him and this rivalry developed between them now it'd be like you had a rivalry with somebody and you were their enemy because you're fighting for the same prize. And then that person became God. And now in the new Bible, mm -hmm. you were just this guy's rival. And now you're the devil. That's <laughs> kind of what happened to Isaiah. Michael Jordan became God. He was Michael Jordan's rival early in his career. So he became the devil. That's the first reason. The second reason is he had a bad basketball career after he stopped playing. In that he had the bad time with the Knicks. Now, it's bad to do a bad job with the Knicks, although everyone has, because that's the media capital. It gets written about like crazy. It gets overcovered. And he didn't do a great job, if I remember, as the coach of the Pacers after Larry Bird was the coach. So that post-career thing kind of obscured his legacy as a player. Now, look, the, often the best players are not great in those positions. Look at Jordan and his career, you know, as an owner. Not great. So um, I think that, and then I think also Isaiah sometimes, you know, doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut. You know, like he says things, he just says what he thinks and he, and he reacts, flies off the handle and says things he maybe doesn't even believe, you know, but like, so the famous one is when Dennis Rodman said after the, the basically Larry Bird eliminated the Pistons in 1987, Dennis Rodman said, uh, if Larry Bird were black, he'd be just another guy. Wouldn't be anything special. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, and everyone sort of forgave it from Dennis Rodman because Dennis Rodman was a rookie and he was Dennis Rodman. But then they went to Isaiah, who's seen as an older player, a veteran, an all-star, and um, a leader, a real team leader. And he said, I agree with Dennis. Now, I, And then he later apologized, but I don't really believe he agreed with Dennis. He was just pissed off that he lost. And they got him at a bad moment and he thought he was backing up a young teammate and those kind of things happening again and again and again have stuck to him and made people forget just how great a player he was. But I'm a big believer in, 
you got to separate the artist from the art. And I don't really care what the painter did in his free time. If the painting is great, I want to see it. And that's what Isaiah's like to me. What is the biggest takeaway readers should um, come with once they read the book? Like, what is the one thing you want them to have in their minds once they're done just reading your work? Well, one of the things I thought was amazing about this era and this team is because I grew up hating the Pistons because of what they were doing to the Bulls. And I didn't understand why they played the way they did. But when you start looking at it, you realize the Pistons were built to react to another team. Every one of these teams is built in response. The Pistons had to play that way to get past the Celtics, who played in a very similar way and had the biggest front line in the NBA, maybe one of the biggest front lines in the history of the NBA with Mikhail Bird and Robert Parrish. And the Celtics had to play that way to defeat the 76ers. And the Bulls learned to play the way they did to defeat the Celtics. So you think you're living in a moment, but it's actually a chain of moments and you're just seeing a little part of it. So, and, and, you know, so to me, that's a really interesting thing. And also a good lesson for life is what the Bulls learned in overcoming the Pistons, which is don't let anybody get in your head, make you lose your shit and start playing their game instead of your game. Remember who you are and do what you do. Don't do what they want you to do. Rich, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you very much for joining us. Please let our audience know where they can find you on social media. Again, where they can find the book, um, additional projects you're working on, anything else you want our audience to know. Thanks. I have a website called authorrichcohen.com. That's only because a guy bought richcohen.com and tried to sell it to me for $1,500. So I'm <laughs> with that. And, uh, and uh, also I'm on Twitter, at, or I guess it's X. On, uh, <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. yeah. What are we calling this? people? <laughs> it's unknown. I guess so it's Rich Cohen 2003 at whatever. At, that's uh, my thing. So and then um, I write a monthly column now. I've been doing it for just since the spring for the Wall Street Journal called Back When about stuff from the 80s that I really like. So recently I did one about the 40th anniversary of the movie Risky Business, which I watched with my mom, which I suggest don't do that. And uh, also about lighting off fireworks since 4th of July that are now illegal and uh, stuff like that. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Hoopsology presented by Boss Life. If you have comments or questions about this episode, please email hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on all social media platforms.